Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Today's guest is likely to be familiar to many of you, so I'm going to keep this introduction shorter than usual because she is someone who has so many words to share, I don't want to take any time away from her. Rebecca Soffer got tossed into the world of grief when she was 30, and her mother Shelby was killed in a car crash just less than an hour after dropping Rebecca off from a family camping trip. Four years later, Rebecca's grief grew a new branch when her father Ray died of a heart attack while traveling on a cruise ship. Why might you know Rebecca? Well, she's the co-founder, along with Gabby Berkner, of the Modern Loss Community. It's a community that grew out of their own need to have a conversation about grief. An honest, raw, and at times irreverent conversation they couldn't find anywhere else. Modern Loss has grown from a website for people to publish articles about grief to an enormous community with public readings and other virtual opportunities for support and connection. Rebecca and Gabby started a conversation that so many people needed to have, and they continue to have it in a way that is relatable and real. Rebecca's newest book is The Modern Loss Handbook, an interactive guide to moving through grief and building your resilience. What I love about this new book is that it enables readers to expand this conversation about grief, but with themselves. It helps them to stay connected to who they are, helps them to stay connected to the people in their life who have died, and also to the world around them. Rebecca's been on the Grief Podcast Circuit this week, talking about her story and this new book. So why should you listen to this one? Well, you'll get to hear Rebecca respond to some of the prompts that are in the Modern Loss Handbook. Questions like, what do you understand now about your mom that you didn't know before she died? And what's someplace your father would have wanted to go but never had the chance to? Rebecca is quick-witted, a fast talker, and masterful at finding apt analogies for grief. Are you ready? Rebecca, welcome to Grief Out Loud, and thank you for making time on a, on a very busy Monday to have this conversation with me. Thank you so much for having me. I, I love doing all the things with the Dougie Center. And, you know, we both know quite well that grief is forever changing and evolving and wondering, like, in this moment, on this day, what's your grief feeling like? My grief, my personal grief as it relates to the loss of my parents is feeling, I guess, okay-ish, which I have realized is like the best that I can hope for. <laughs> okay-ish is not the worst thing ever. When you like start out on the journey and you're like, it's literally never even going to be remotely okay. My grief about the world is pretty intense these days. I can't lie. There's a lot of grief out there. I'm feeling pretty heavy. With being, you know, well, let's see. How do I ask this question? So I think for some folks, when their grief is really new, there can be this place of like, my grief is so new and raw, I can't even think about the grief of the world. 
And then you move into maybe a place where the grief of the world really exacerbates the personal grief or the personal grief. There's a relationship between personal and world grief. And I'm wondering for you, being a few more years out, what relationship does world grief and personal grief, what do they have together? Well, okay. So I think that, first of all, that's a great question. Well done. And second, part of it has to do with your own personal wiring. I'm somebody who is definitely a feeler. I would say I'm an empath. And that definitely sounds like I'm self-congratulating. I'm not, by the way. <laughs> it's not like I, I do think that I, I, I'm empathetic. I, I, I don't think I would be able to do the work that I do if I, if I weren't at least somewhat empathetic. But I'm also like very much a feeler. And when you're a feeler, sometimes you tend to take on the weight of other people's hardships or stories that feel very sad and overwhelming. Um, and I think also just human beings in general have a tendency to do that. But some people are, I, I would say, maybe like more highly sensitized than others. And I, I, you know, I think I know thyself, you know, I'm definitely one of those people. And so I, when it comes to like, hard things in the world, like, uh, you know, need I say more words than Ukraine, COVID, <laughs> you know, um, politics, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's been a tough time. And so I, I get to the point where I just have to kind of turn things off. I'm a journalist by training and I really do like being informed, but then that goes against like when I take on a lot of these hard things, it, it doesn't go well when I'm like, but I like reading the news. I think that I've just come to this point in my life and also at this point in the world where we need to kind of get comfortable with the fact that there probably isn't going to be any other time moving forward when we just like read the newspaper on a Sunday and it's like not traumatic. I had this conversation with a friend of mine who writes for the New York Times a few weeks ago where we're just like, where's the article that says like moving forward 70% of all news con consumption is probably going to be very, very upsetting. I think that, you know, I deal with that, uh, especially as it relates to like when I'm feeling more of my own losses personally, I have to cut down on external things. I have to cut down external stimulation. I have to take the New York Times app off my phone because sometimes it really does play into like the, yes, like I always live with my own personal loss and it can only exacerbate what is no longer there in my life, which is so cherished and valued. And I miss it every single day. It's interesting to think about the idea that there could be a relationship between when grief gets okay-ish then I can read more upsetting news. And when grief is not okay, -ish, right. less upsetting right. news. <laughs> right. It's like whenever I feel like my well is like a little bit fuller, that's when I'm like, oh, okay, now I can watch Black Mirror. And then it's like, <laughs> why did I do that to myself? Like I literally just messed myself up. But you feel like you can take on more. <laughs> and you do because we're all masochists, really, you know. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm really trying in my own personal loss experience and like as a human person in general to like cut down on that. Well, and I, I think about too, sometimes you talked earlier about how we're all wired and things like grief and trauma and pandemics, they can impact our wiring and we get calibrated to a certain level of input that maybe can be activating in some way. And so when that 
activation goes down, we might naturally seek out something that's going to reactivate us. So we're like, oh, we're back to our comfort level there. And, you know, and it makes me think about your book that's coming out, which is why we're talking. And listeners, the book is called The Modern Loss Handbook, coming out on May 17th. You know, the book really does such an amazing job, the handbook, I should say, does an amazing job of giving people prompts of ways to think about the people in their lives who have died, to think about themselves in relationship to that, to those losses. And you, there's some great questions in there. And so as I was reading through the handbook, I was like, oh, I'm going to plagiarize two of these to ask Rebecca. So I'm going to ask you your own questions uh, about your parents. And I, the first one I want to ask you is, what is something you never understood about your mom until after she died. Mm. I feel like I'm on like a Barbara Walters special and you're going to get me. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, when Barbara, it's like, I know I'm like dating myself. Like, yes, I'm a proud Gen Xer. But like we would all, my mom and I would always w- watch the Barbara Walters specials and she would like get Patrick Swayze to cry and like get Mike Tyson to cry. And everyone goes into it going like, you're not going to get me, Barbara. <laughs> and then like, it's like, she asked that one question and there you go. So you've kind of asked that. Um, you know, it's funny. The first thing that comes to mind is after my mom died and she died very suddenly in a car accident when I was 30 and it was terrible, you know, obviously as all profound losses are. One of her best friends from San Francisco sent me this huge box of printed emails that was a chronicle of their friendship. And she was like just overwhelmed by grief with the loss of her friend. My mom was like everyone's cheerleader. She had so many friends. She had like 300 people at her funeral. I had three ex-boyfriends at the funeral. They were not there for me. Like this was a reflection of the woman that she was. And, you know, I was 30. I was a single woman. I didn't have kids. I was just starting out in my career. I just graduated from Columbia Journalism School. So it wasn't like, you know, like I related to my mom very much from like a mother-daughter standpoint and from, you know, the standpoint of somebody who wasn't yet a parent and like wasn't yet like well into her 30s and then, you know, starting her 40s um, or married, you know, I, I just could only truly relate to her on certain levels. And those levels were great. We were extremely close. My mom's friend, Barbara, sent me this box and she said, your mom, there will never be another friend like her. I will never have another friend like Shelby. And I read through these emails And it was like, honestly, it's like, I'm so grateful that I read them. And then I wish I hadn't read them like at the same time, like everything can be terrible and wonderful simultaneously. (laughs) And that's what it was. And I remember reading these emails alone and, and kind of just like, like, it was like the night that I read under the banner of heaven by John Krakauer, which is about Mormon fundamentalism. And it's like such a page turner. And I stayed up to like 5am. And I was like, stop reading, you're going to be tired. But then I read the whole book. It was the same experience with these emails. I was like, do you have to sleep? But I couldn't stop because it was like getting a pulling back a curtain into my mom's soul as, as she was just a person in the world, not a mom, a friend, a woman, someone struggling with, you know, getting a little older, maybe entering menopause, you know, trying to lose five pounds and wondering why her body wasn't obeying her. And my grandmom had died six months before my mom died, Sylvia. She died in um, 
February, 2006, my mom died in September, 2006. They were best friends. And then my mom and I were best friends, you know, like they were my people. And I remember hitting this one email telling her friend, like how she just felt so unmoored without her mom. And my grandma was 80, 89 when she died, she died from a stroke. And I remember my mom telling me like, you know, a mom is a mom is a mom. It's, it still hurts. And she didn't talk about it so much. Like we talked, like we missed grandma. She wasn't like evasive. She showed her grief, but like, it wasn't until I read that email that went really deep. She didn't want to show me. She wanted to protect me. She was really having a sad time. She was moving through it. She wasn't having a pathologized time. She was just grieving. And I really got an insight into how much a 63-year-old woman could still really miss their mom, even when they had them, you know, they're in for such a long time. And it just made me wish that I could go back in time and hug her and treat her a little bit more gently. And of course I was super loving. I mean, like I was, my grandmom's death broke my heart, but I wish that I could have sat there and asked more questions and said more things to my mom. It's curious that in a way, well, one, you got barbara by your mom's friend, Barbara. I'm imagining. I did. <laughs> She's not, not only by you. I did. I got barbara by Barbara <laughs> via the USPS. And also uh, imagining that these emails in a way gave a little bit of a roadmap or a little bit of an insight into what the grief you were going to now be facing about your own mom's death. Mm-hmm. Ironic, isn't it? It was very, it was very weird. I mean, it was kind of, look, it was, it was not my best year, 2006. It was not my favorite year. It definitely was. I was reading and I was just like reading it. So aware of the irony, you know, of like all the deep grief that I was feeling and wishing that my mom could comfort me on her own death. It sucked. Gosh, that's something I hear all the time, right? Like the the one person I need to help me in this grief is the person who died. Like it's the ultimate devastation of that. Okay, so question number two that I plagiarized for for you or from you to ask you. Plagiarize away. Plagiarism is the sincerest form of flattery. (laughs) So, (laughs) Well, this one's about your dad. And I don't know if it'll be a Barbara question. We'll find out. But what was your dad's favorite place? And why? And was there some place he really wanted to go to before he died that he never got to? Well, I know that answer. Lake George, New York, like without a doubt. It's in the Adirondacks. So for all the listeners worldwide, it's in upstate New York. It's a gorgeous glacial lake. It's about 32 miles long. And my dad and my mom were 20 years apart from each other. So my dad was 20 years older and he actually was in the army in World War II, if you can imagine. He didn't fight. He was like a writer. (laughs) He was an editor in Stars and Stripes. And he used to come up with like all the fun jokes for war bonds when he was like working with Bob Hope and all that. He was very, very witty, clever guy. And during the war, he was given a furlough, a two week furlough and he was like, well, where do I go? Cause he was like stationed somewhere in New York state. And someone said, Hey, there's this really great place and you can go and you can rent a boat and they throw in all this camping equipment and you camp on the islands. And it's something like, like, let's go back in time. It was like five cents a night, you know, for all that. And he went and he fell so deeply in love that every single year for the rest of his life, except for like a couple of years when he was really ill, 
he went back, he went camping in Lake George and mostly for two weeks at a time. And there's no running water. There's no electricity. There's no nothing. I mean, you really need to want to be there. The greatest gift that he gave me, I mean, he gave me a lot of great gifts. He was witty. He was clever. He was just like intelligent, but he gave me this gift of place, which is so wonderful because it's just pure nature. And it is still so beautiful there. It's so gorgeous. And it's, it never changes. That's the best part of it, that it's a place that is my touchstone. And like, no matter how much the world changes, I can go back here because I've been going since I was two months old. My mom, like, I mean, if, if she were around, you would ask her. She, I'm sure she was not thrilled to be asked to go camping with a two month old baby. <laughs> this is like my dad's thing, but she was like, so game. She's like, whatever. Um, but I grew up camping on these islands. And to this day, I, every winter I go on to reserve America. I make a reservation to camp on my favorite Island, Mohican Island. Um, because that is, that is my dad. That is his legacy, his greatest legacy. And that is also the most tangible thing that I can give to my children from him which is a place that he loved because they'll never meet him, but they love Lake George. And for me, that's like just so amazing. You know, now, is there a place that he never got to go to? <laughs> I mean, outer space. <laughs> and like, I know that sounds crazy, but like Bezos did it. So it doesn't sound, I mean, he theoretically, he could have gone, you know, by now. Was he the kind of guy who would have signed up to go to outer space? Absolutely. Absolutely. He totally would have. Yeah. He, he was a real traveler. He grew up not having a lot of money. I'm from Philadelphia. He grew up during the depression. He did not go to college. He got into college. He got like a full ride at the university of Chicago while he, after he left the army, but he, he ended up starting his own advertising agency, which became an international ad agency. And he was just so clever and so self-made and so driven, um, and so full of confidence in a way that I'm definitely wish I'm envious of that. So he grew up kind of like a have not. And so he really did value the ability to travel and have experiences. And like, he, was very much not like a, a thing person. He, he would absolutely always choose to put more money into experiences, into the trip, into taking me to see something than like, you know, the fancy car. And so the new, the new book, modern, the modern loss handbook, it's grow growing out of your work as the co-founder of modern loss. And then also your first book, um, which was beginners welcome candid conversations about grief and loss. And I, I know many of our listeners are, are likely familiar with modern loss, but for those of, uh, of you out there who aren't, can you talk a little bit about modern loss, the organization and, and why is, I was curious, I was like, why is beginners welcome such an apt like tagline? Oh yeah. Fun fact, my friend, Tim Fetterly came up with that tagline and Tim has become really well known as the showrunner for high school musical, the musical, the series on Disney plus and has this great movie called better Nate than ever. Now he's just amazing. He's like really, really dear friend. And I just want to say that not to name drop, but because I, I love him very much. And because when I started off on this crazy modern lust journey, he was one of the only people who did not talk to me as though my idea sounded morbid, 
morose, depressing. He was like, yeah, you got to do this. And he really, I, he was one of my people who really spurred me on and encouraged me to like, kind of drown out the naysayers. So many people were giving me and my co-founder, Gabby Berkner, side eye. Modern Loss, for those who don't know, is um, in essence, it's a global movement that is aimed at one goal, which is to destigmatize, you know, the topic of grief and loss and also show that grief is all. It's talking about finance. It's talking about sex. It's talking about identity and jobs and, you know, who you spend your time with and friendships that grief touches every single aspect of your being. And so there are so many stories that can come out of it and they all can relate to loss. Um, and also they're very long, you know, ranging in terms of timeline. You know, the grief stories aren't just like the first 365 day period of time after a loss. It's a 24 seven, 365 thing for the rest of your days. And it doesn't mean that you're talking about stories of deep grieving it means that stories still come out of your experience that stem from the fact that you've gone through a loss. And we try and show that these are normal human things that people go through. And we try and show without telling, you know, without bashing someone on the head and saying like, this is what it is. Or, you know, we show through personal essays, through community, through people giving each other peer-to-peer support, we ask them to show each other and not tell them like, how can you show examples of resilience? How can you show examples of like how you're dealing with like a new ritual or a trigger day or the fact that your dad's dating someone awful and your perfect mom died or like you really like secretly hate everybody who's pregnant on the street because you had a miscarriage. Like how can you help each other through this? Because I, Rebecca can't help you. Um, I only know my grief experience, but I can help you doing what I know how to do, which is build a community and be a writer and an editor and a publisher and a speaker and a producer. So by applying my professional abilities to a topic that I also live and breathe every single day, then I can help like that this conversation to flow through many, many channels. And so it's an online publication. We've published, you know, upwards of a thousand original personal essays and resource pieces and how-tos and expert conversations. Um, there's a newsletter on Substack, which is like a deep dive into, you know, uh, interviews with like bold face names, you know, like Cynthia Nixon, Stacey London, um, a, a lot of great people who kind of really go deep into talking about their losses. Uh, we do live storytelling events. We, we did a lot more before there was a global pandemic, but really many, many like live storytelling events around the country featuring comedians and authors and people because we believe that humor and joy really play into the loss experience because you absolutely deserve to live a life that's full of laughter and joy. And I promise you'll still feel like crap, but you also deserve the moments to laugh too and connect with each other through that laughter because this grief thing is totally ludicrous. So sometimes you kind of have to laugh. Um, and yeah, and I do a lot of public speaking and, and, and of course now I've written, I co-authored the first book, uh, with Gabby, with my co-founder and, uh, the second book I did all, all on my, <laughs> all on my own. <laughs> so I've been busy. I was gonna say, it's amazing. You're still sitting upright, having this conversation I mean, with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaning heavily on these armrests. But yeah, this one, and I should say that this was launched in November, 2013. So a long time ago, uh, when not a lot of people or especially in like 
social media realm, you know, organizations, of course, but we're really approaching the topic in this tone. And our tone, I would say, is like unapologetic. It's full of humor. It's very tongue in cheek. It's very casual. That doesn't mean it's light like L-I-T-E. It means that I have no problem publishing something that is L-I-G-H-T. I have no problem because I feel like everybody you know, has their own personal experience with grief. Everybody approaches it and takes away from it their own thing. And so if somebody wants to write a piece that's like a satirical piece, you know, about like grieving in springtime and like, you know, how dare people be happy, you know, and like every, you know, your person is dead and, you know, just, and it, it is quite obnoxious, like great, like, get, you know, tell your story, share your narrative. Um, if you want to share a piece that's, that's really somber and really just has, you know, no humor in it whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you need to just, you need to share your narrative because what I have learned is that if you don't, figure out a way to share your own story, then the world will be more than happy to tell you what it thinks your story should be. Be it like how long they think you should be in deep grief for, how long they think that you should probably not be able to go to work for, or then be ready to go to work for. You know, we're, we're all too happy to like fix things for other people in this society. One of the things I remember loving about Modern Loss when you all first started with your online uh, essays and blogs, and then when beginners welcome. And I was like, oh, I'm so grateful this exists. Because prior to that, this is not true across the board, I'm sure I just hadn't found the right places. But I always had this sense that there was an expectation that when someone in your life died, your grief almost had its own personality, but it had to um, just fit into this like three types of grief personalities, you know, and it had to go exist in this other place. And modern law seemed to give people permission to have grief be integrated with their own personality, whether that personality was irreverent or somber or joyful or a mix of all of those things or confused or whatever it was. It was like you could just grieve using the language of your day-to-day life. It didn't have to go over and live in the little like rainbows and butterfly room. Right. Kittens. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I love that you said that because, yeah, like I'm not like a deep writer, you know, like I write very much in the way. If you read this book, you're going to be like, oh, this is Rebecca talking to me. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm just saying I'm no Joan Didion. I wish I were. (laughs) I did not write the next year of magical thinking. I wrote something that is meant to be very accessible and it's meant to be very engaging and very, um, very welcoming and very forgiving because the whole tenet of modern loss is not only that storytelling is a change agent, which can really eradicate stigma and create community and also like create empathy. Like you have a ripple effect, you know, you're probably helping the next person. As long as you're not hurting yourself or anybody else, why shouldn't you fly your flag? Who cares? Like, who cares if you want to be the person who like channels their grief through irreverent tweets, like who cares? You know, if you want to be the person that creates um, an Instagram account, you know, to like that's a photography that reminds you of your person or 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 visually portrays how you're feeling on any given day. Who cares? Who should have any say over how you express your grief? Nobody but you. As long as you're not hurting yourself or anybody else, who cares? And I know you said it's like you feel like you sometimes have to fit in like one of three personalities, right? It's like the rending of the <laughs> of the clothes or like, you know, the person who's stoic and totally fine or like 
of like the third archetype, like the person who's like in denial, probably who's just doing, you know? doing, 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 working, 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 yeah. working. Yeah. Like working into that, which was me for a very long time, but that got really tiring. And that's one of the reasons I started modern loss was because I didn't want anybody else to go through that because it was hell. It felt it was hell. I ran myself into the ground. So who should care, you know, and I want people to live their experience in a way that is completely unapologetic and also enables them to draw boundaries with other people or situations and enables them to build their support systems and know how to find help where they need it and when they need it. Like, I really want to help people to resource themselves because the truth of the matter is that we do such a crap job in this country of supporting each other through hard times. We do a really bad job of supporting each other through good times, you know, <laughs> like we're not great at like the, we're in a very like individualistic society. This is all very much like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This is the United States. And that extends to emotional bootstraps too. But that's not what grief is supposed to be. Like grief is such an individualized experience, but it should be lived communally. I really believe that not because I'm like an anthropologist. I don't, I'm not, I'm not even as, I'm not a social worker. I have a master's in journalism, but I think I'm an expert in grief, just like everybody else is an expert in grief who's grieving. I know what it feels like to grieve. I know that I need a community. I don't think it should be lived in a vacuum. I think that it feels more manageable just knowing that there are other people out there willing to have the conversation with me whenever I need to. It somehow feels like a lifeline one of the things that really stood out to me with uh, the Modern Loss Handbook is that there are, you do talk about a few like more traditional therapy options that people might consider, but the bulk of the suggestions and the resources are not traditional therapy. There are things like body-centered practices, creative practices, writing practices, and I mean, I appreciate that because I think so often someone in our life dies and everyone's like, you got to go see a counselor. And sometimes seeing a counselor is a really helpful thing to do in grief, and sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's that plus all these other just day-to-day things that we can do to help keep ourselves afloat in grief. And I wondered, like, how did you come to that place? Were there particular practices or resources that were really vital in your own grief experience? Yeah, I mean, the reason that I included like the the majority was not like about traditional therapy is because like, A, I'm not a therapist, we've established, but B, primarily because I'm a huge fan of therapy, by the way, like absolutely. I think it should absolutely be one of the pillars of like, you know, uh, grief management. Uh, But as you said, sometimes it doesn't help or sometimes it's not everything. I don't think it ever is. Is anything ever everything? Nothing is ever everything. Um, now I'm getting very meta. But like I <laughs> in the morning, but, sometimes my coffee concoction, it really does feel like everything. The first coffee it's, it's in the morning lived. is everything. <laughs> the only thing that is everything is the first coffee in the morning. We are in agreement there. Beyond that, nothing else is everything. And so, yes, like grief therapy, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Like it took me a really long time to find the right grief therapist. I didn't, you know, I'm embarrassed to say, but it probably took me two years to find the right grief counselor. I started doing like talk therapy. And then I felt like I was just like, but which by the way, I, I, I then did move into another talk therapist, but it wasn't the right one. The first one, I felt like I was just like going in, like 
like ejecting everything that I needed to say and then like leaving and then coming back and ejecting everything. So I didn't really feel like I was getting anywhere other than just having like one venting station. And guess why I don't think that worked for me? Because I didn't have any other circles to which I could vent or who I could talk to or how I could like, you know, diversify my grief experience and my grief expression. It was all saved for my therapist's office. If I had had more support, if I felt like I wasn't driving myself into the ground at work, if I felt like I could go on a date and not feel like I was like spinning my wheels, desperately trying to figure out like not how to mention that my mom was dead. Cause I was like, so mortified of the reaction or go out with friends and like, try and let my guard down and share that I really was feeling like a total freaking mess, but didn't want to be the Debbie downer. So, you know, I didn't want to share that. If I could have somehow allowed myself to do all of those things earlier on, I would have gotten a lot more out of grief therapy earlier on. I really believe that. And so, yeah, like, great. There's a section on grief therapy. I'm big fan, big, big fan. Let's establish that. But like I said, I don't think you have to be an expert on grief. I don't think you have to be a therapist to be an expert on grief. I think that grief is a very human experience. We're in danger of pathologizing it, as, as I think you know. I think it's a very natural human experience that the stats show that about 85% of people, if they have the right support and they will move through it and, and hopefully find a way to build some meaning and create meaning from their experience in the wake of this awfulness, you know, you need to do three things in order to get there. You need to figure out ways to stay connected to your person because you need to realize that your relationship isn't over just because they're dead. I mean, look at what I just said about my mom. I totally regarded her in a different way after I read those emails and she was already underground and my relationship with her changed, you know, so you have to figure out ways to stay connected to them, to deal with whatever, like, you know, Ajita was left behind by the time they died, because we all know it wasn't tied up with a pretty little bow. That's not human beings, right? Um, you need to figure out ways to like move through these trigger days and maybe create meaning out of, of anniversaries or birthdays or just bespoke holidays, create your own holiday. You have to figure out how to do all this stuff. You have to figure out ways to stay connected with yourself. One of those things is definitely, yeah, sure. Traditional therapy. Okay. But you can also be very, very creative. You can figure out ways to, to kind of like examine your relationship with grief and your person through music, through art, through writing and no, not, not the year of magical thinking, you know, like not all that, but like you can, you can write like a six word memoir and examine your grief or like a grief manifesto. Um, you can do so many short creative things. You can do things through physical destruction. You know, I have a section on DIY therapies and how sometimes like just breaking shit feels really good. And you know, it does, as long as you're not like breaking anything that's like in your house and should not be broken. Um, you know, th these are all ways that you have to figure out how to stay connected to yourself. You have to realize that grief can really like shake your body down and affect different parts of your anatomy. And so you have to figure out ways to treat your body well and get better rest and get better sleep during a time where getting the best of all that is probably not possible, but you have to figure out how to get better of all of it. And then the third thing is you have to figure out how to stay connected to the world around you. So stay connected to your person, to yourself and the world around you. And by the world around you, I mean, you have to still, you, ha you still have to figure out your social relationships with your person gone. There's probably going to be a rejiggering of social dynamics and communication in their absence. You have to still have friendships. A lot of your friends are probably going to disappoint you. It sucks 
We don't talk about it a lot, but it happens. So you have to figure out ways to make other friends and support systems in your life. And also ask the friends that are around who are willing to do better, to do better, but show them how based on what you need. You have to figure out ways to still probably have a career and work and date and do all these things. And so that's what I say when I mean, stay connected to yourself, to your person, to the world around you. Like those are, I feel like the three things that you need to figure out in order to get to a place where you really are building resilience and pulling something that is meaningful through a total disaster. You know, what is a total disaster at the beginning? Rebecca, when you interview someone, you always end the interview by asking them, like, what was the most helpful thing someone did for them in their grief? And I'm wondering, what's the most helpful thing someone did for you while you were writing this book during a pandemic while parenting? Oh, my God. Jenna, it was so hard. Can I be honest? Can we have like a Please. moment <laughs> just between the two of us and all your listeners? This was so hard. This book writing it wasn't hard. It wasn't the right, I had stuff to say and I almost wrote it before the pandemic, but then like timing wise, things didn't happen. And then all of a sudden we're in a global pandemic. And all of a sudden I have a three and a six-year-old and a husband who had COVID the very first week of COVID as did my six-year-old. And I was all of a sudden like taking care of half my family and dealing with a community a grief community who was dealing with so much resurfaced grief um, and figuring out a way to like, you know, be a teacher, like, cause preschool was online, kindergarten was online. And then all of a sudden, like after a couple of months, I was like, I know that I don't really have the time for this, but this is when this book has to be written because there was just so much grief permeating from everywhere. And I kept getting asked, like, how do I do this? Like, how do I move through this world? <laughs> like without any roadmap. You know, um, my best friend's mom died from COVID. They said goodbye on an iPad. My very best friend's mom. It was terrible. I couldn't go and hug her because it happened in May of 2020. So I was just feeling so heavy with all of this grief. And we've already established that I'm a big feeler. And I had my own personal grief that I was dealing with. And so the book just, it was time. And so it really did come out of me. Like, I, I, I think that the blessing was that like, I honestly had no apology. I was like, this is what I have to say. Um, I'm lucky that I get the chance to say it. If people don't like it, that's okay. Like I won't take this personally, but this is what I have learned. And this is what I've learned from also people who are really smart, a lot smarter than me. And this is what I've learned from our community. So it's gotta be worth something. Um, and during that process, I would say <laughs> childcare really helped. My, my babysitter, I couldn't have done it without childcare. I could not, I could not have done it without childcare. And even then I still wrote some chapters with like a naked child on me who like just jumped on. Cause he, you know, he just didn't understand that mommy was, you know, <laughs> at age three, just not, could not shockingly could not read mommy is busy on the, on the door. Um, so childcare, um, is something that I'm incredibly grateful for. It's one of the best things that anyone did for me. It enabled me to feel like a human person during a time where we felt like our humanity was so incredibly threatened and fragile. It enabled me to feel like I was using my brain, even though I felt like my brain was being stretched so thin that it was going to crack at any given moment. It really enabled me to remember that I was more than um, a mom. And by the way, <laughs> if you're a mom 
and that's it. You're never just a mom. You're also like so, so many other things. I mean that like I had been working for so long on modern loss. I love it so much. I care about the community so much. Having the care and the support enabled me to keep doing that. So childcare, yeah, but like on a more like, you know, like specific note, um, a really good friend of mine, um, Emily Rapp Black, who you may be familiar with. She's an incredible writer. She's written um, many books, um, including a memoir called The Still Point of the Turning World, which is about her son, Ronan, who died from Tay-Sachs um, before, I think, his fourth birthday. She's become one of my dearest friends, and she's also just like an incredible writer. And um, she, you know, I was so lonely. I was writing this like in the wee hours in the middle of like the woods in the Berkshires and so lonely, like I'm so social and like I hadn't seen friends for so long and I was writing, which is so lonely. And I would just send things to her at like midnight and say like, does this make sense? And she would get it back to me. She'd be like, yeah, no, yeah, no. And I just, just having somebody who I felt like I was sharing a brain with, who got where I was coming from with regard to what it's like living with loss and writing about loss and just like, giving me that support in a way that was like so um, open-hearted and without expectation. That was just like the best gift ever because I was so lonely writing this. Um, and then I would say like the kicker is when this book started turning into something else, <laughs> it definitely started turning into a little bit something different than what my proposal looked like. But because that was what was coming out of me, we can hearken back to my friend, Tim, Betterly, who I um, texted him when I started freaking out one day, I was looking at all these chapters that I was sending to my editor. And I was like, I don't know, this looks like 60% different <laughs> than like what I had said I was going to be sending. I don't know, like, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I should stick to the outline. And he called me and he's like, he, it was like the shortest conversation in humanity. He said, Beck, let the book be the book. And then he's like, I really got to go. Bye. Love you. And that was it. <laughs> and that was so helpful. And I was like, yeah, let the book be the book. Like, who am I to say who the book is, what the book is? Like, it's just coming out. And that's also a lesson that I've learned about grief. With grief, I've learned that you really can't control what's going to happen. Like ever. Like you can control if you want to go to a certain therapist or if you're going to wear a certain outfit and you know, uh, you can, you have to control the things that you can control, but so much of it is beyond your control. Um, and so when it comes to like bracing yourself emo emotionally for like trigger days, you know, anniversaries, death anniversaries, um, Tuesday, you know, when you always used to watch like whatever, like, I don't know, the Kardashians were on, on what Sunday, like, you know, like, whatever you used to do with your person or whatever it is that you're dreading, that's like coming down the pike in the calendar. One of the best lessons I've learned was just let the day be the day. And that has really, really helped me. That's like my unsolicited two cents of advice to anybody is like, I kind of thought that like my wedding day was going to be torture because my mom wasn't there and I braced myself for it. I, I probably did like so much damage. I was so stressed in the weeks leading up. I was, I couldn't eat. I, I did not look like somebody who was about to get married. I was super stressed. And then the day was like amazing. Mm -hmm. 
I had like a 13 piece live funk band who cannot have fun with that. Um, and I danced all night and I was surrounded by friends and I just reveled in it. And I was so surprised. And so I was like, why did I go through all, I put myself through the ringer and it just, the day kind of ended up being what it was. And sometimes it'll be better than you thought. Sometimes it'll be so much worse. Sometimes it'll just be neutral. You can't really control a lot of it. Well, Rebecca, one thing I can control is putting all the ways for listeners to find your new book, The Modern Loss Handbook and Modern Loss Community in the show notes, but just wondering if there's any particular invitation you'd like to extend to listeners of how to connect with you. Sure. Um, well, we're always at modernloss.com and also modernloss.substack.com. That's the newsletter. And we have, um, you know, as you know, the book is called The Modern Loss Handbook, an interactive guide to moving through grief and building your resilience. And to be clear, it's not a workbook. It's not like a book that you just write in. It's a fully written book that you also can write in. And you can also throw across in the wall when you need to. It's like very user-friendly and it's meant to be done in any which way, shape or form or abandon and come back to. Um, and I'm really proud of it. Like I, I honestly think that it can help people because I selfishly wish that this is something that someone would have given me after my mom died, after my dad died. And like, I still, like I used it myself. I, I wrote answers to my own questions in the book to make sure that it was something that would resonate with me. So I think this is something that could be used like at any given moment in time because loss is a forever thing and it ebbs and shifts, takes on different forms and it's always worth examining, you know? And that's how you can be, I guess, okay-ish with it. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much again for your time today, for talking with me, for sharing your insights and your stories with our listeners, and for the new book that you've put out in the world, which will be available on May 17th, listeners. So Rebecca, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I love you guys. You're the best. I love your work. And listeners out there, I say it each and every time, but thank you for being part of our community, for making the show mean what it does, for sharing episodes with people who might be helped by something that we're saying in this realm. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can reach me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G, which is also our website where you can find all of our past episodes free downloadable activity sheets, tip sheets, uh, and information about our local programming. So thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. Grief Out Loud is sponsored in part by the Chester Steffen Endowment Fund.